0: God's word says in Ephesians chapter three, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to be by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations which is your glory in the 1960 presidential election our nation had its first televised debates and since that time there have been many important things that have come from those debates lines or gaffes that have seemingly transformed elections the older in here may remember in 1992 the vice presidential debate when Ross Perot's running mate, Admiral Admiral James Stockdale, got ready to debate with the other two men. He had a very distinguished resume, had had a great career in the Navy, but most Americans didn't know who he was or what he'd done. So he began by saying, by asking, who am I and what am I doing here? But the lights being shown on the stage and the way he asked it came across more like, who am I? What am I doing here? And as he asked, the audience laughed. And so rather than coming across as a person who was about to reveal to everyone his unique and great qualifications for being vice president, he came across as someone senile and not even sure what he was doing on that stage. But he was asking the right questions. Because to know what you're doing, you need to ask, Who am I? What am I doing here in this world? And last week we examined Paul's self-identity and saw that he was a graced servant and a humbled sinner. God's grace not only saved Paul, but it also was God's grace that allowed him to be a minister, a servant of God. You know, we noted last week the privilege it is to serve someone famous and we get to serve God and his image bearers on earth. As well, we said that as Paul grew spiritually, he came to realize more and more of his sin and it caused him to be a humble sinner that realized he needed to trust in Christ. Well, today we're going to look at Paul's words about his mission or the mission, the task that God had given him on earth. And then we'll see that he's given a mission to the church. So do you have any mission or purpose in your life? Is there something God wants you to do? Or is that just up to each and every person? You choose what's your purpose in life and they choose theirs? Well, we'll see this morning that Paul was given two clear purposes share the wealth, in end of verse 8, to illumine the dark, in verse 9, and then the church is given a purpose to display God's wisdom. We'll see that in verse 10. But let's look again at verse 8. Paul writes to me, though I am. The very least of all the saints, this grace was given to, so that's his purpose, to do what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul was to preach to the Gentiles. Now the word preach is actually the same word for which we get the word gospel, euangelion, but it's made into a verb. So really what he's saying literally is that he came to proclaim the good news or to tell the good tidings. And this is not just any good news, though, for Paul has been laboring since the beginning of this letter to show that this is the best news in all of the world. News that we were dead in our sins before God. Yet God, by His rich mercy, has made us alive together in Christ. He explained it in this way. In chapter 2, verse 8, he wrote, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the best news, news of great joy. That's why when Jesus was born, what did the angels say? They said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. News of great joy. So Paul has a unique mission And that is out of all the 12 apostles, Jesus specifically commissioned him to share the good news to the Gentiles. Who got a plan for all time to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. However, he began that by working through Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, who became Israel, and then through the nation of Israel. That's why Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. Yet, they were then to be to the nations and yet the jews often miss that they were to be god's ambassadors to the world and instead they stayed away from the world rather than seeing they were a light to the nations they sought to keep the darkness from the nations out rather than telling the gentiles of the cleansing that comes through the sacrificial lamb they tried to keep themselves away from those unclean gentiles yet jesus clearly told his disciples that they were to be his witnesses in jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And yet, though Jesus clearly commanded this, even his disciples had trouble with recognizing we need to go to the Gentiles. You can read how Peter had to be given a vision three times, how the Gentiles had to speak in tongues, and then they had to have a council in Jerusalem for them to realize the Gentiles can be accepted by faith in Christ alone. And though Jewish believers finally came to see that, Jewish non-believers, at least non-believers in the Messiah, hated this idea. Thus, when Paul was talking to some and told them that God had sent him to go to the Gentiles, they declare in Acts twenty six twenty, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Just the idea that you think God might love Gentiles was abominable to them. And yet through preaching this good news to the Gentiles and threatening his life, Paul still considers it a joy. He considers it his mission. And notice how he explains this message. It's the good news for it is the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable means uncomprehensible, unfathomable. Now that doesn't mean illogical or irrational. It just means beyond our finite minds, comprehension. Job, when he's rejoicing in who God is, declares in Job 5, 9, God does great things, and unsearchable, same word, marvelous things without number. After Paul has talked about in Romans how God saves Gentiles, and how they'll be brought back together, he writes in Romans eleven thirty three, O Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, Are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways? Well, what's unsearchable in our context? Well, it tells us in verse 8 it's unsearchable riches of Christ. Do we realize how wealthy we are spiritually? Do we live with confidence, joy, hope, and trust due to the wealth we have in Christ? tragically we often live as spiritual paupers we think we have no reason for confidence trust or joy we act as though there's really no source of hope in this world all the while we have immeasurable unsearchable riches in christ you know consider brothers and sisters that in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace In Christ we'll have the riches of his glorious inheritance for all time. And so Paul rejoices that he gets to proclaim, he gets to share of this wealth to the Gentiles. But what about us? Are we called to be preachers to the Gentiles? You know, if I was listening to the sermon, I think I'd be going, well, yes, I see that's Paul's mission, but is that mine? And that might seem too trivial to consider, And yet I think it's very important because sometimes Christians feel guilty for things that they're not responsible for. Now what I'm going to say next may sound wrong, but please hear everything I have to say. We are not called to evangelism like Paul was. Ultimately, our calling is to love God and love our neighbor as himself. And so every Christian is called to love those around them. And at times that means we should evangelize, we should share the good news. Other times, you may not be able to evangelize for years. I've known people who, in caring for elderly parents, barely ever get out. And for almost a decade, they can't interact with much of anyone. They shouldn't have a sense of guilt that they're not evangelizing. Some jobs, some stages of life have you around mostly Christians. You shouldn't feel guilty for that. If we're loving those around us whose God's put in our sphere of influence, then we're honoring God. Yes we should be praying that God would be bringing those who are lost. We should be burdened for those we do know who are not saved. Yet that does not mean we have the same role as Paul in preaching the gospel. Yet to be a faithful witness means we eventually must use words. But often we get the opportunity to speak words after our life has demonstrated a difference. And in this case, we must ask ourselves, do we think that coming to Christ enriches our life or impoverishes it? And I think if many professing Christians were honest, they would say, Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, and yeah, Jesus is important, but, you know, I mean, I'm not going to obey everything he says. I mean, I'm not going to be some kind of like Jesus freak that does everything the Bible tells me to do. And yet, Jesus gave us rules out of his love for us. Therefore, our benefit to obey Him is not to impoverish your life. To obey Him is to make your life the wealthiest life you can have. He came to give life and to give it abundantly. And Do we believe that? Or are we maybe slightly embarrassed by our faith? We should want to give people the richest life possible, and that life only comes through Christ. The problem, though, is that the riches of Christ... Or for all who will turn and trust in Christ, turn from their sin and trust in Him. And we often don't have eyes to see that. And that leads to Paul's second purpose, verse 9, illumine the dark. Let's begin in verse 8 again. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, one, to preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And here's his second purpose, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So Paul's mission was to bring to light what was hidden or darkened. Now Paul knew both literally and metaphorically what it meant to have the light shine on him. Keep your place in Ephesians. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we'll begin in verse... Three. There it says, Now as he, being Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, or at this point, Saul, and suddenly a light frank from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now jump down to verse 8. Saul... "...rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him down into Damascus. After three days he was with sight, and neither ate nor drank." Now jump down to verse 17. "...Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, "'Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit.'" And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Now flip over several chapters to Acts 26, because there Paul is again telling of his Damascus Road experience. And notice how he expands on it some in verses 15 through 18. So Acts 26, beginning in verse 15. And I, being Paul, said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus by faith in me. Thus, even before Paul had gone to Ananias, God had revealed his mission to the Gentiles, a mission that would cause the blind to see. Satan works hard to blind the mind of unbelievers, to keep from, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, God has to give everyone eyes to see, Jew and Gentile. And thus many of us resonate with the words when we sing, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life has led me to the grave. You know, we thought we could see clearly what was true riches in life, and we pursued it as hard as we could. Yet you know, we just ended up poor, dry, barren, distraught. Ironically, what was true life, Jesus, appeared to us as poverty. That is, till God gave us eyes to see the glory and beauty of Christ. You'll see, know, C.S. Lewis captures this well in his novel, The Last Battle. And it, 12 dwarves believe that they're being treated poorly, when in fact Aslan, the hero and Christ figure, seeks to help and bless him. Lewis writes, Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarfs' knees. Pies, pigeons, and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly they thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of thing you might find in a stable. And they raised their golden goblets of rich wine to their lips and said, ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Until God's Spirit shines the light of Christ into someone's heart, they look at the things of Christ and say, ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Yet when they see Christ as He truly is, the eternal son of God who became man to die in the place of their sin, then they know he's a rich feast with good wine. There's no one else to turn to because he has the words of eternal life. He is life himself and whoever comes to him will never thirst or hunger again. So friends, do we know Christ like that? Here it burdens me that so many professing Christians in the U.S. hold to the right truths with their heads, but they're completely apathetic in their life. It's as though Christ burdens us rather than blesses us. Yet it is God who makes known to us the path of life. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Paul has the privilege to bring to light God's plan of Christ, coming to reconcile everyone, Jew and Gentile, to God through Christ. No plan A for the Jews and plan B for the Gentiles. No, for through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile have access in one spirit to the Father. Thus the God who created all things is now recreating them in Christ. And notice this kind of interesting thing. Paul is saying... In 2 Corinthians, God has to shine. God has to open their eyes. And here he's saying his mission is to illumine them. Well, why is he saying both? Because Paul realizes God is sovereign and we have a responsibility. We don't just pray, but in the times God gives us, in the times we cry out saying, God, would you give me doors to share your truth? We know that God will use our words to bring people to faith. Yet, The idea that God has given us eyes to see might be raising a problem for many of you. If not for you, then I know it does for many of our friends and family. You know, it's common to say, well, look, you should have faith. Faith is good. But to say your faith is the faith, that's arrogant. That's closed-minded. That's dangerous. My favorite analogy people like to share is that of an elephant and six blind men stumbling upon it. You Each one of them goes up and touches a part of the elephant and declares what they're touching is the whole truth. So one goes up and touches the trunk, and he goes, oh, I know what this is. This is a snake. Another one goes up and feels the leg and says, no, no, that's not a snake. This is a tree. And then a third one feels the, air, the ear, and he's like, oh, this is a big fan that moves back and forth. Then the story goes on, each one telling their perspective and thinking it's the whole thing. And so we're told that religion is like these six blind men. They each goes up and they share something true, but it misses the whole thing. They're thinking their part is the total. Thus our loved ones, or maybe some of us here will say, well, yes, look, Christianity has some good things to say. Yeah, there's things in it that are valuable, but I mean, it's not totally true. That's arrogant. Yet there's one significant problem with the analogy. It is that there's one person who's not blind. You. You're the one who sees the whole elephant. You're the one who's able to tell everyone, oh, you're only seeing this is true, you're only seeing this is true. And so while it comes across as appearing humble, oh, we all need to recognize that everyone sees a part of the truth, you're the quite arrogant one saying, I can see you're all wrong. And actually the only thing to realize is all faith is the same. And so in its claim to humility is quite arrogant and more than that as many people have noted if the elephant speaks and says i'm an elephant it's not then humble to go no 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 it's not an elephant no if the elephant says i'm an elephant then we should listen and heed what he's saying and since god has spoken to us it's not arrogant to say this is true it's humble to submit to it now to be clear We are not saying, and Christians shouldn't say, we have the ability to see and know everything. We have all truth. We're not saying that. We're saying that in the things God has revealed to us, those things are totally true. And God has to give us eyes to see Him. That's why we just sang a minute ago. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. So, Paul has declared his mission is to proclaim good news, or as I titled it, share the wealth, and to illumine the dark. And Paul does this so the church can then go do something. We see that in verse 10. Let's begin in verse 8, though, just to get the context. So, back in Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verse 10, beginning in verse 8, he writes To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, one, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and two, To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that... So there's a purpose. Paul does all this for a purpose. What's that purpose? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is an amazing statement. So let's break it down in four parts. First, what is made known? Second, by whom is it made known? Third, to whom is it made known? And then fourth, how is it made known? So first, what is made known? We're told the manifold wisdom of God. The word manifold is the same word used in Genesis to refer to the multicolored coat that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. It's something that is uh, displayed in many beautiful colors. In God's wisdom, His manifold wisdom is displayed in, In not just one isolated incident, but rather in a wide variety of ways, God's wisdom is made known. It's manifold. Let's just consider one aspect, one person, Joseph. Consider the life of Joseph because we see God's wisdom of his timing and that when do Joseph's brothers take him? On the day that traders are passing by to go to Egypt. When was Joseph taken to the slave market? The day that Potiphar... Would be there when did pharaoh's cupbearer forget about joseph until the day when he could be presented before pharaoh and so god's timing was perfect in its wisdom we could see god's wisdom in having joseph deliver the region from death by famine we could see god's wisdom displayed in turning joseph from an arrogant self-focused bragging boy to a humble forgiving man and that's just Joseph. We could look over and over at God's manifold wisdom. Well, by whom is this wisdom made known? It says the church. The word for church, ecclesia, means called out ones. And it was reused to refer to an assembly. In fact, you can read in Acts 19 that there's even a gathering of non-Christians which is called an ecclesia. Ecclesia is a general word meaning assembly. Yet while it could be used generically even non-religious people it came to symbolize the assembling of christians you know, sometimes the word church is used the word ecclesia for all followers of jesus sometimes called the universal church for example even here in ephesians ephesians 1 paul is rejoicing in what god the father has given jesus in chapter 1 verse 22 says and god the father put all things under jesus feet and gave him as head over all things to the church now church there is meaning one idea one universal church or even later in ephesians paul will talk about husbands and wives and say this is a mystery but i'm referring to christ and the church talking about christ dying for all believers of all times all places the universal church yet ecclesia can also refer to a specific distinct group of christians sometimes called the local church For example, in Acts 14.23, it says, they appointed elders for them in every church, implying there's more than one. You can't have every if there's only one. Or Acts 15.41 says, Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches, plural. So the New Testament has this idea of universal church, and then it also has this idea of local church. And we have to be careful when we're reading the New Testament, which one's being used so we can apply it correctly. Now, this isn't just meaningless semantics. I say this because you've probably talked to Christians, and then you say, hey, I'd love for you to come worship with us and go, oh, I don't need the church. I'm part of the universal church. Well, yes, there is a universal church, but God has also given local specific churches. Consider this. For example, Hebrews 13, 7 commands, Remember your leaders, okay, so Christians should have leaders over them. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. If we only have a concept of a universal church, then who are the leaders? Whose faith am I imitating if I don't have anyone over me? Or verse 17 goes on, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your soul's as those who will have to give an account. So who, which leaders in the universal church are going to give account to your souls? Well I believe if you're here it's Keith and I. We are going to have to give an account because we're not called to shepherd every Christian in the world but the ones gathered here. In our passage today we're going to see well look there's this universal idea in this local idea and actually we can apply it to both in our context in other contexts it's specific to one or the other however before we look at that we need to see to whom god's manifold wisdom is made known and it says in our passage to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies you know we are not given many descriptions of heavenly beings but we know that in other places the bible talks about angels and demons we don't know everything about them, and we're wise, I believe, to not speculate beyond what the Bible tells us. But they are real, and God wants them, it's telling us, to know about his manifold wisdom. This is really shocking when you stop and think about it. God has planned for all time for angels and demons to see a performance, so to speak. A play, you might say, where God's wisdom is displayed to them. The actors in this play are not just individuals, though, but rather it's the church that acts out. And God wants heavenly beings to know his wisdom, and he wants them to know it through the church. That's interesting, an idea of how do you want to reveal something to others. You may have seen this week that the Kansas City Zoo, they suspended in the air in the rhinoceros pen a stuffed ball filled with colored confetti. I don't know if anyone else gets the weird feed I do. They then let in Ruka, the eastern black rhino, who came charging in and with his horn hit that ball and out fell Pink Confetti. It's a girl! They wanted to reveal to the world the gender of the new baby rhino and so they had the rhino hit the ball with his horn. Well, God has something more important to reveal than the gender of a rhino. God wants the world to know his manifold wisdom, and he chose for the church to be the ones to make this known. Could there be any more important mission and role for us to play? And this leads to the fourth question, though. How is God's manifold wisdom revealed? It is revealed by the fact that in the church there is a manifold, multicolored diversity. Today, around the globe, there are believers worshiping God through Jesus in English and in Arabic, in Spanish and in Chinese, in German and in French, in Russian and in Hindi, and we could go on and on. The universal church is filled with men and women, boys and girls, infants and elderly. We come from blue collar, white collar, and people who don't even own collars. We enjoy monster trucks and public transportation, sports and arts, outdoors and indoors, and have people of various political and economic viewpoints. Thus, on one level, the universal church displays to the heavenly beings the wisdom of God that through His Son, Jesus, He could unite all these people of various personalities, of various interests, of various cultures. Yet it's not just the universal church for by God's divine design, each church should be diverse. Now, of course, we're never going to match a universal church, but in each local church is a manifestation of unity around Christ, even though there's a diversity in this room of people and our interest. You know, some of us loathe working on computers, whereas others of us despise house repairs. Some of us love sports. And others I us think, that's a massive waste of time. A few of us consume politics. And some of us couldn't tell you the difference between a Republican, Li- Libertarian, or Socialist. I don't know. We're young and seasoned. Male and female. White, black, Hispanic. And if it weren't for Christ, many of us would never end up in the same room together. Yet our local church displays not just Paul's just saying not just to Wichita Falls. He's saying our local church displays to heavenly beings the wisdom of God. You know, it's a sad irony that often Christians will say something like, well, I should go to another church because no one's like me. And yet Paul's saying that's the very thing that matters. You're going where no one's like you. That's displaying to heavenly beings. look. That person goes to that church and no one's like him. It's amazing. How do they get along? And then they go through Jesus Christ. He unites them all. And we do this not by sitting in the same room for a little over an hour once a week. We do this by becoming united in exalting God, in evangelizing the world and seeking to encourage and edify one another. By my count, there are 21 different times that the New Testament calls us to do something to one another for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's five, Romans twelve ten, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Galatians six two, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. First Thessalonians five eleven, therefore encourage one another and pray for one another. James five sixteen. Confess your sins to one another. 1 Peter four nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And when we live this out, we display to the heavenly beings the manifold wisdom of God. As one pastor put it, the world can unite around politics, sports, race, class, community, hobbies, cars, and causes. The angelic realm is not shocked to see people united around commonality. What shocks them is when we unite despite our differences. So thus, since God made the church central to His display of His wisdom, the church should never become secondary to our lives. You know, We should be shocked and saddened when Christians say, well, you don't need the church to be a Christian. Well, is the local church often broken? Yes. Does it often look very little like Christ? Sadly, yes. Have many people been harmed and hurt by local churches and leaders in it? Tragically, that is a yes. But we should not throw the towel in on the church, for God has not. It is His means of showing the angelic world the glory, wisdom, and power of His plan in Christ. Your Church is more than a place to passively come and attend a service. Church is where we gather for worship, for encouragement, for evangelism, where we do this with people of various ages and stages, various financial backgrounds and likes and dislikes, because we're united in our love for Christ. And when we do this, we display God's glorious wisdom to the watching heavenly beings. So we've been given our mission, or we might say our role in the play. Do you know your lines? Do you know the script? Are you engaged, not just passively attending, with the people here? God, the director, has a role for you in his play. Are you playing your part? Are you loving and caring and serving for the people of this church God didn't save you just to keep you out of hell. He didn't save you so that you don't get punished. And you just, you know, now what he wants me to do is not just cuss. I'm no longer going to steal. I'm going to be a kind person. Those are all good things to do. But God also saved you and gave you a role. He gave you a role in his play. So let us play our parts to our fullest. So that God's wisdom might be known and rejoiced in. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a joy that we get a part in the play, that you determine that for all eternity that angels and demons would rejoice in you because of what this little church does, what churches around the world do, what we do in various languages because we're united under your son. So may he unite us and may we want and be eager to serve one another so that your name might be glorified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.